You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I'm Christoph Jospe here with Ross Kenyon, as always, and producer Paul Gamble. We're in the Nori office looking forward to record something a year before you actually hear it. But happy 2019, everyone. I'm also very happy to have one of our own sitting across from us as the guest. It's nice for us to be able to take the time to reflect, talk about some of the things we're doing internally and how all this relates to reversing climate change and building a carbon removal marketplace. How about you introduce our guest, Ross? Sure. Jason Horton is Nori's principal blockchain architect. What a beautiful title you have. Jason, why don't you just start from the the beginning, how you got involved in Nori and blockchain. And you've been involved in blockchain for a very long time, probably as long as anyone I know. Yeah, since 2010. The, the stories are a little bit different for each of those uh, questions. Uh, one being, you know, when did I get involved with Nori and when did I get involved with blockchain? The blockchain question goes all the way back to 2010. When I was studying at Arizona State, I was working at a place that had some access to some pretty high performance machinery. And 2010 is really, really early Bitcoin days. Why don't we, do we have a sense of how much it was back then for Bitcoin? I remember person? the lowest I, I saw it when, uh, after playing around with it, was around like eight cents. Okay. So yeah. if you're feeling FOMO right now listening, you are not alone. <laughs> well, but but the interesting thing is when you first hear about something like blockchain, like crypto, it's like, okay, yeah, eight cents, but who's buying? And Certainly all, not me. It's kind of sketchy exchanges. And I think you had to know a lot of technology to even get involved in it. Very strange worlds. When we started kind of playing around with the idea of like, okay, we've got this high powered machinery. We don't really know what to do with it after 5 p.m. The idea or the topic of, of this Bitcoin thing starts popping up and uh, kind of piqued my curiosity. It was this kind of currency that was supposed to power the internet. It sounded like a lot of BS, frankly. Um, but then you, you, you start to spend a little time with it and it starts to just really pique your interest in, in just various ways. Um, and so the first thing we started doing was, was uh, we had all these GPUs. We've got this high, high sorry, performance. Sorry, GPU? Yeah, uh, sorry, uh, graphics processing unit. Um, a video card and a computer. Good thing I used to bug my dad for as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was, so so we, we had all these uh, video cards and we, because we ran effectively a visualization center um, for projecting 3D simulations into these 270 degree rooms. So, so we had these, these uh, cards and we wanted to kind of play around with this idea of uh, Bitcoin. And so we started spinning them up and seeing exactly what this thing was. Between myself and uh, another uh, individual there at Arizona State, we were, I guess, taking it like a science experiment and trying to figure out, okay, this thing sounds interesting, also sounds like BS. Let's try and like test it. Let's see what you can do once you have some of these these bitcoins. And so, so that's what we did. We we saw the, I guess, the the, the landscape at the time, which was kind of appalling back in 2010. It was. It was not uh, not a pretty place. It was also just like a kind of place where nothing was developed yet. There was there was it was hard to move these currencies around. It was impossible to do anything other than moving currencies around. Well, wasn't it kind of similar? I, I remember protein folding at home 
being a project that kind of was more popular back then. And I remember seeing Bitcoin and thinking like, this is basically the same sort of concept. Yeah. The one difference there, and like I would say, you know, those folding at home ideas were slightly more interesting than Bitcoin because effectively (laughs) you have this idea of useful work versus what Bitcoin has, which is proof of work, which more or less just means you're expending a lot of energy to create you're expending a lot of useless energy to create something versus folding at home where you're uh, expending useful energy, like folding proteins to find cures to build something else. Yeah, I'm trying to remember this. Now that you you say it, I, I have like glimmers in my memory. And it was something like people would take these, uh, try to fold protein at home. They would use their computing power to solve problems of, of what exactly. Yeah. And did, it, did it lead to anything? Uh, I don't know. I don't know whatever came of that. I know there they actually, and I don't even know if these are a hundred percent linked. Um, but I remember there was a folding coin that came into play at some point where um, there was actually like a currency being traded around based on the work that was being done on these folding of proteins. But yeah, I don't know what really came of it. But it was it was kind of more of a game. I remember it like it was you would fold proteins, try and find you know what, whatever the combinations that you could come up with with them, and see if you can find something useful with them, versus Bitcoin, which is more or less useless energy in the sense that it doesn't do anything other than create that currency. Only other than, you know, make it possible <laughs> to, to exchange value in a decentralized global fashion instantaneously. But that 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 part's not obvious when you first get into Bitcoin, right? It's it's 2010, nobody's using it. So what do you mean by powering the world with this currency? Nobody's using it. Nobody's accepting it. Nobody's spending it. Um, which was kind of the, the scenery at the time. So I remember seeing all kinds of things starting to pop up and it was starting to pique my interest like after these science experiments, um, if you will, um, where you see these these markets start to emerge where people don't know how to exchange Bitcoin for anything valuable, especially dollars. So these markets start to pop up where, okay, we don't have Bitcoin to dollar markets, but we have second life dollars to uh, real dollars. Something else happened in 2010. There was a Bitcoin to pizza transaction. Right? There was, yeah, 10,000 Bitcoins for a single pizza. Um, but, the, but frankly, those were pretty rare. Like, I mean, you, you'd be lucky to find those. I mean, you could, you could potentially purchase like an iPad and then never get receipt of it because you don't know how to really track the Bitcoin transactions yet. So these, these markets were pretty interesting. It was interesting to see people like come up with solutions like these Second Life dollars to dollars um, and then effectively recognize that that market exists and then figure out, okay, I can't do Bitcoin to something like PayPal because PayPal starts to ban it. Um, but I can do Bitcoin to second life dollars. That market's super easy. So you see that as like the first real, like kind of, I guess, arbitrage type market that pops up. Um, and then you see the transition from that to, okay, now I've got second life dollars. Now I have real dollars. Um, and then you see all kinds of really, really kind of, I guess, sketchy type exchanges pop up like, like Mt. Gox back in the day. Um, which effectively will ultimately lose all of their users' funds um, because at that point, we still don't know what Bitcoin security is, crypto security, blockchain security is. So yeah, it, it's it's been an interesting journey, but it's uh, not until probably smart contracts, specifically Ethereum's smart contracts come come around that I start to like really realize like, okay, this is not just a currency system. And I say just like, okay, yes, it's a big deal to have a currency system, but It's a singular use case for uh, technology. When the smart contracts come around, I say, oh, okay, this is something you can actually build a business around. This is something that you can uh, build uh, financial agreements around, some some kind of contract 
in which two parties or multiple parties enter into and just execute some kind of financial eventuality based on some agreement. That you can write into code and sort of automate based on certain criteria being met. Seems yeah. Pretty, and it, pretty exciting. So why is that a big deal though? Well, so so imagine imagine a, a, a few use cases here. The most simple one, I, and I think Nick Zappo might have framed this one up, which was the idea of a vending machine being a smart contract. You put a dollar into a vending machine and you expected soda can to come out. Um, it's the most simple you know, generalization of a smart contract. Um, when you give money, X happens. And so, so you start with that, and that's maybe not revolutionary. It's, it's a soda machine. But then you start to think, okay, well, if I can do that, then fundamentally what's to stop me as a real estate broker to say, when you purchase real estate from me, what's to stop uh, that actual transaction, like the transaction that has to happen for me to, get, to sign over the deed? Um, what's to stop that money being the thing that executes the transition of the deed from myself to you? Not unless you have programmable money, programmable currencies, programmable technologies. Is that possible? So you're saying the, w the way that it works now is if you went to buy a house, the person selling it would put the deed of the house into escrow. And then you have an agent who holds on to that and waits for the money, make sure uh, all the various elements of the paperwork and insurance and everything works out. And then they change hands of the documents and the money, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so you're saying, what if you could just program that with code such that that escrow agent is out of a job? That's what a smart contract is. That's exactly, that's exactly right. So, so what is the, what was the, even the need for that third party to be there other than the money couldn't do it? Um, so now we need a person to handle that transaction. So you mentioned Ethereum and you also said the words world computer and starting with Bitcoin, but then also transitioning to Ethereum, kind of explain for our listeners who are quite savvy as reversing climate change aficionados, but novices are not necessarily experts on the blockchain side. So what what does that mean? Like what what is the ultimate play with Ethereum? And you sort of said that that grabbed you in and got you mm -hmm. really excited. But what was it about that world computing opportunity? The fundamental difference between things like Bitcoin, which which have the the kind of I guess sole use case, um, and things like Ethereum, which have smart contracts baked into it, is that you you can start to you can start to program those agreements. You can start to think of every transaction being not necessarily financially oriented. It's it's just a change of some state to some other state, and when you have that programmability and you have that ability to associate value with that programmability, um, then you have smart contracts and then you have any code that you could typically write, um, except now you've got this built-in notion that those transactions like have value associated with them. It's, it's valuable computing. It's, it's uh, much different than, than really anything that has been before. So Bitcoin is relatively simple in comparison where it's People have tried to build smart contract layers on top of Bitcoin, but it isn't something that's at like, the root reason why Bitcoin exists. And then next generation projects like Ethereum, which is what Nori is built on, came along and said, hey, smart contracts are our focus. It isn't just about uh, financial transactions. It's about programming agreements between people who don't necessarily know each other or trust each other and not having to rely upon a third party like a bank, something like that. Mm -hmm. Is that pretty good? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you can, I mean, you can tear, tear the world of blockchain apart into a thousand different pieces and each one of those pieces is going to be interesting in some way. 
the fundamentals. We should go to some of the conferences we've been to. Yeah. <laughs> are, are, are you saying that they are interesting or are they definitely not interesting? Oh, uh, man. No, no comment there. <laughs> we've we've cut our conference budget, if that tells you anything. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, some of these, yeah, there, there's a lot of use cases for blockchain that fundamentally are not use cases for blockchain. It's It's frankly fairly... I guess if you've ever really worked with blockchain, it's pretty obvious when something is a blockchain use case and when it's not. Um, but when you haven't worked with it, it's like, oh, blockchain is that new uh, secret part of my solution or secret part of my idea that's going to finally make it work. Um, but that's not the case. It's it's a tool in a tool shed. It's, it's, is it like a, a couple with a failing marriage saying, hey, if we have a kid, that'll solve all of our problems? <laughs> that's Yeah, I feel like sometimes that's exactly what it is. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I think he, well, for everyone who doesn't know, Ross is a certified blockchain professional, which probably <laughs> should put you on the blockchain world PR committee. So I'm, I'm volunteering you, Ross. But Jason, you, you got in a little bit to, to use cases where you think blockchain fits, where you think it doesn't fit. So what are some of the most egregious use cases where it just makes no sense for this to be on a blockchain? So at least in the way that we, we know blockchain today, the way that we see the way, like the, the, the speed at which it can process transactions, the speed at which it can do certain uh, types of computation, you see the trade-off being, okay, this is much, much slower than like a high-performance computer. This is going to be much more expensive than a high-performance computer. So anytime you have any idea that requires one of those two things, high-speed transactions or low-cost transactions, a blockchain is not where you want to be, period. And for, I feel, you know, 95% as a rough estimate of pitches of this should be on a blockchain should not. And so when you think of things like AI or if you think of things like VR or if you think of anything that needs to be fundamentally part of the blockchain, that's that where you're not using the blockchain purely as a settlement layer, as like, okay, we have state that happens elsewhere. We have gaming or we have AI um, or we have medical processing or protein folding, if that's happening in some kind of other like high assurance computation network, that's where it probably should be. And then you should check that state in when necessary onto a blockchain. So um, you've got a medical application and you're processing or folding proteins and you find that you know these two genes can do uh, or these these two genes working together do X and that X is some kind of highly relevant kind of finding, then maybe you check that state into something like a blockchain, something that has permanence, transparency, um, and can, can potentially be persisted you know, much longer through time, then only that state should be checked in and not the computation surrounding it. <laughs> some of that last little bit, I think uh, I lost some of it in translation. But I guess one way to bring it back is that there are trade-offs between different blockchains, right? And so some of these things that you're describing, I think I've actually heard you say Ethereum is like a donkey, something like this, but like it's it's not the fastest, it's not the sexiest. Uh, I mean, there are, there are projects that come out all the time that claim to be much better than Ethereum in various capacities, but Ethereum is just sort of this like stalwart thing. But if you need transactions to happen immediately, there are other blockchains that have fewer nodes in the network that need to come to consensus and they can do this uh, much quicker. So if you have a project that or a blockchain that only has seven nodes or something like that, and they're all trusted parties, 
Sorry, you, Ross, you, can, you, can you explain what is a node and why is that relevant to come to consensus for securing blockchains? <laughs> uh, okay, so like a, a node in computing must just be, I don't even know how you would say this, it's like, um, like an agent that has some sort of authority that must be checked in with or some such. Fair enough. Yeah, and we're just participants in a system. Yeah, which, oh, okay. so to go back to Jason's story, when he was at Arizona State University, his science experiment was, and what's amazing is that the professors were cool with it, which is kudos to ASU, you know, let's become a node and be effectively a Bitcoin miner where we're discovering new Bitcoin and just to define proof of work, which you mentioned is a lot of useless energy consumption, where basically you have these nodes racing to solve a math problem and then you have other nodes which validate that they got those that math problem correct and the other thing the node has to do is download the entire network and the information stored on that network so everyone can trust that to be true and then it's distributed across across many different layers how am I doing, Mr. Certified Blockchain Professional? You're good. You're good. Yeah. I know what I'm talking about. I'm always hesitant when everyone says it's like just purely useless energy, though, because what Bitcoin does is quite important and you are spending energy to secure a global uh, network of financial transactions and information changing hands in a transparent and new kind of way. Yeah. But it's just like that math problem is like it's not helping anyone solve cancer or protein folding or anything. Right. And that's that's the useless part. Like it's yes, what you the outcome is not what's being measured. Like the thing that comes out of that useless energy might be something interesting something valuable in this case bitcoin what's not useful is what is you or like the process that is required to make that thing but that's just me being a little bit pedantic but yeah i think you explained the rest of it just fine but there are other blockchains you could use if you needed a, a very instantaneous transaction but then there are also cases like if you need those elements of the blockchain to be successful for your business case, why aren't you using uh, Azure or or some other cloud-based computing solution? So when when in like blockchain protocol development, there's this classic trilemma that you uh, you can have three different things. There are decentralization, security, and speed, and you choose two because you can only have two of those because necessarily the the third one just won't fit with those. And Ethereum has chosen decentralization and security. And that's why when people bring up that Ethereum is dealing with scaling issues right now because the transaction speed is pretty low. But the, there's a lot of work being done to upgrade that and make that more feasible for broader application. But some of these other blockchains that you're talking about, they're choosing different um, pairs in that trilemma. Yeah. So, I mean, so you start with the question of what, what do I do with this idea? I've got an idea. I want to bring it to life. And maybe one of the questions you have to ask is, okay, does this belong on a blockchain, which has become like an increasingly common question, which sometimes is yes, sometimes it's no. But then even if you choose yes, then it's like you have to decide, okay, there's not just one of these things that I can build this in. Like there are a ton of experiments out there. And frankly, a lot of them don't work and some of them do. But you have to choose, okay, I've got the idea, I want to put it on a blockchain, now what, where, which one do I put it on? So why why Ethereum then? Why did we go that way? I wrote an article about this, we'll link to, but I'm going to play dumb. Why, Jason? <laughs> why is Nori built on Ethereum? Yeah, the, the biggest reason uh, we are built on Ethereum is because of the open source community that surrounds it. Um, there's a lot of other reasons. I thought you were going to say because we like hexagonal stickers. We also like hexagonal <laughs> stickers, and where else do you get them? So excited for the Nori hex sticker there. Let's Me get too. it. Yeah, I've been waiting. <laughs> so, so with with Ethereum, we've got a fantastic open source community. Um, we've got a ton of developers working on a lot of open ideas. 
Um, you've also got a functional blockchain. You don't have something that's going to happen. You have something that's happening right now. Um, and you have a lot of developers working on the future of it. You have a lot of uh, developers, like really bright developers, um, trying to figure out how this thing scales or, or can solve this problem or that problem. Frankly, what it does now does mostly what we need it to do. Really, the only things that we could add to Ethereum at this point that would actually be relevant to us um, are things around like, okay, we have these side effects of what the blockchain does, and that's kind of around the energy consumption. Um, but there are tons of proposals about how to not have a direct impact on that energy discharge. There are things like running uh, high-efficient side chains, um, effectively running another blockchain in parallel, which has zero or near zero energy footprint. And then you check state in when applicable in a single batch. And Ethereum is a public blockchain as opposed to a hybrid or private blockchain. What what does that mean? If it's not a public blockchain, I don't know what it's doing out there. It's it's quite <laughs> silly. Uh, it's a the, big talk over here. Yeah, I mean the the biggest thing you really derive from building something on a blockchain is that it's public. It's that it's verifiable. That everything that has ever happened has happened in the context of that blockchain. Um, so as soon as you have a private blockchain, well, you should not be using a blockchain. You should be using a, a database or any other computer. Yeah, you mostly hear about private blockchains or permissioned uh, blockchains as sort of being enterprise solutions, and they're maybe worried about the scalability or the security about being fully on the public side of the blockchain. Ooh. I think the the main thing that they use them for in those cases are for state tracking. But yeah, there are lots of other solutions for that that have been around for a very, very long time. Which it might, good things might grow out of that, right? Yeah. Like maybe we don't see the, the benefit right now, but there's been lots of cases where research uh, has uh, like come upon something in a way that you didn't expect it. So maybe some good things will come out of it. Although sometimes it is hard to see. You're like, why? If you, if you already know and trust these people that are also on the private blockchain, like why? Why do you need it? Because the, the, one of the main features of the blockchain, as I understand it, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong is that you're able to uh, work with people that you don't actually trust. You can assume that they mean to do you harm, yet you're still able to transact on a blockchain and you can mostly assume that the incentives will line up where it will work out okay. Exactly, yeah. If It's, it's one of the few examples out there that you can take um, some technology or, and, and effectively flip uh, incentives as you know them today um, and flip them on their head. You take this idea where everybody in your network is an adversary. Everybody is is out to get you, and effectively you incentivize like the behavior to, uh, you fundamentally incentivize the behavior to cooperate, um, whereas it becomes disproportionate to instead being an adversary. So I'd like to pull some things out of you as you talk about your <laughs> <laughs> organs, Fig figuratively, teeth. right. <laughs> you know, you could probably make some kind of uh, market for that using blockchain technology, but I don't want to go there. Um, just continuing your story, you know, it's been almost two years when you first started thinking about the integration of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and blockchain technology. Can you talk about that and then kind of the evolution since? Yeah. Uh, so this this is, I mean, relevant to what we're, we're we've been talking about till now. It's it's. When I guess Paul uh, pitched this idea to me, um, and when I when he pitched it to me, I was like, "Oh, okay, this is maybe the first time I've heard a blockchain application like actually make sense." Like, okay, this is where that happens. I remember your conversion moment there because Jason and I knew each other just because we'd been well. 
that uh, research center at ASU that he was talking about earlier, we both worked there. And I think Jason was basically hired to replace me after I graduated. That's correct, so, yeah. so we never really overlapped much. But uh, Jason and I have been talking for a long time about crypto trading, um, just making various investments. I started investing in Ethereum in early 2016, I think. And up until then, I've been talking to Jason like all throughout the fall and winter of 2016 and saying like, man, this Ethereum thing, this is really cool. You should be checking this out. And I was getting a lot of poo-pooing from him in return. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't until I think it was in February of 2017 when there was a hackathon that was being hosted uh, here in Seattle, um, hosted by a combination of a couple different groups. One is IPFS, the Interplanetary File System, which is a not a blockchain project, but it's related to the decentralized uh, movement. And then MetaMask, which is an Ethereum tool to connect your browser to um, to the blockchain. And I remember this being on Super Bowl Sunday. And it was that Super Bowl when the Patriots were down like 28 to 3 in the third quarter. And so I went to this meetup with a bunch of other computer science nerds who were clearly not interested in the Super Bowl and thinking like, ah, I don't care. This game's over. And I went to it and turns out, you know, game was way more interesting. But uh, Jason was home in Phoenix and watching the live stream and we were chatting online during it. And I, like that was when I, I saw from a thousand miles away, a light bulb going off for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, you mentioned one of the, I guess, groups associated with that was, was IPFS was protocol labs really. It's this kind of phenomenal startup uh, that's that's more more so part of the decentralized movement. Um, and, and prior to really working directly on blockchain, um, I was very interested in mesh computing and decentralized computing, things like that. So when I saw this this amalgam of ideas just come together in that same room, I saw I saw the link. Like I saw that you could take each of these things and start composing them, um, putting them together and, and building something real. Um, and so so then uh, I suppose after after you know getting effectively sold on the Ethereum blockchain, then comes like this idea like okay well, let's let's participate in this thing let's see what we can build for this these groups of individuals. This is this hackathon. This is the the very first hackathon. Yeah, this is uh, uh, for a project called Carbon Harvest. Carbon Harvest. How come we didn't go with that name? I don't know. <laughs> I think we had a hard rule that carbon was not allowed <laughs> yeah. to be in our name. Mm -hmm. Nothing green. Nothing carbon. Yeah. Uh, and and so it, uh, really it was it was Paul's ideas to to do the the carbon harvest idea and he started pitching it to me and I remember hearing it like okay yeah this is this is absolutely like these are the types of things you can do on a blockchain that makes sense. What what, the, what was different about it then? Is that what you're going to say? Well, I was just going to say what carbon harvest was. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just a little bit of context background. I started a meetup group in Seattle in 2015 called Carbon Removal Seattle with the intention of ultimately spinning out a business that ended up becoming Nori. And as part of it, we were always trying to think of what are the different ways that you could build a business model around removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And I'd always been taking a sort of like products-based approach, like in direct air capture and that sort of thing. And when this came up, we'd also inside our, our meetup group had been looking into embedding or storing carbon in soils through regenerative agriculture. 
And the basic gist of carbon harvest was, and we learned that a lot of this wasn't actually possible, but simply pay farmers a token for storing carbon in their soils. And uh, we thought that um, it could be as simple as just like embedding a sensor into the soil at like different mm, spots. So cute, so naive. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that, that it could be all automated and truly decentralized and all that. But I mean, the basic gist of it was, yeah, we were we were creating a token and we were giving it to farmers for uh, for embedding carbon. And then the value creation around it, like where the value for the token comes, that kind of springs forth from from that. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. And then Nori came along. And I think people probably know the rest of that story quite well. Jason entertains all of my bad computer science questions as a as a noob. Were you going to add something there? I was just going to say, if you want more about the Norigen story, uh, you can go to episode 13 of this podcast to hear the rest of the story. Yes, yes. Very good plug. Let me uh, talk about the Comet Farm. That's, I mean, I actually think Carbon Harvest is a great segue into that to knowing what is actually feasible. Because at the end of the day, what Nori needs to be very good at is finding ways to estimate and quantify carbon dioxide removal. And if you're just sticking a probe into the soil and saying, give me a reading on the carbon, and then I'll measure that over some other future date and then subtract the difference, that doesn't exactly work. And so what we figured out we needed is we need a model. And the best data model available and something that's open source has been built by a group at Colorado State University and funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the NRCS, which is the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And what they've done is they have basically built a data model that is able to estimate incremental increases in soil organic carbon based on certain inputs of which you're now intimately aware. And that model can be calibrated through different soil tests and is kind of key to making the whole back end of everything that Nori is doing work. And we recently... Well, not too recently, but we passed a significant milestone, which is integrating the Comet API with the Nori API, which without putting words in your mouth, Jason, is a way for data to talk to each other. But can you tell us a little bit about how we fit with Comet Farm and why that's a big deal and how that all works? Yeah, uh, I mentioned earlier uh, when I was talking about you know my aha moment about why you know Ethereum might work with all these different technologies. Um, a fundamental piece of open source computing is like these, I, this idea where one thing can compose with another thing. And a fundamental building block of that, um, of that composability, is the API, uh, the application programming interface, which is more or less the communication fabric between closed source, open source softwares alike, um, which basically just defines a language in which you, like one piece of technology, can talk to another piece of technology. It's a common, a common language between two completely different things. Give me a, an example, because I can imagine listening to this and, and not quite grasping that. I, I can give you one. So say you have a, you have a weather app on your phone, mm -hmm. and that app is just a container that shows you all sorts of things, like, and it'll, it'll put up an image with a sun or a cloud or a raindrop or something like that. But it has to get the data from somewhere, some meteorology service that's telling it what 
what the weather is at that time. So that app might send a request over the internet to a the National Weather Service, for example, who would have an API that you could query it and ask, what is the weather in this zip code right now? And it will then uh, return that to you. So as far as your app is concerned, like you don't have to program anything about like measuring what the weather is. You can just go extract that information from somewhere else. And so now we have an equivalent version of that more or less with between Nori and Comet Farm. Yeah. And and I, I even want to take that a step back further just to really like let this sink in because this is a huge thing for all of technology. Um, and, and something that we, I think, maybe take for granted as like, okay, this is just, you know, if there's a weather service, we can get that information. But APIs really like think about them as two completely different things. Like we have an application that does this and it uses this code, like it uses JavaScript. And the Weather Foundation has something that's using C++ or some other completely different language. Until APIs really started to become a huge thing in the world of information technology, we had no way to connect those two things. If you wanted that information, you go talk to the engineers and you get that manually. It's like siloed, Mm -hmm. truly. Yeah, it's siloed. Yeah, it's the fundamental, I think, door opener for most of open source technology. Without APIs, we can't build good things. And so for for us, um, to bring it back to Comet Farm, Comet Farm is uh, just a fantastic tool, um, and you summarized it pretty well, um, of you know estimating the soil carbon or the carbon in soil. And effectively, what they do a good job of is taking highly complex scenarios and just running them through like a ton of simulations and outputting all kinds of data. And for us, uh, because we're building you know the carbon removal marketplace, it's perfect. It's it's you know a match made in heaven. You know, we need to get data in order to support the claim that people are removing carbon. And so where better to get that than from the most, you know, highly accurate potentially model or uh, programming simulation um, than Comet Farm. Some of the things that they like about us is now they're getting verified data, which is going to improve the model. We're collecting data that they may not ask for, but may work as a substitute, um, which also enables certain refinements of the model. And there's a whole suite of things that they're not even thinking about, but we can still collect and give to them in the future and sort of do things that ultimately will enable better science and more reduction of the estimation error or the uncertainty around the soil organic carbon. I think the the open source question is really interesting too. So kind of from the science side, it's very clear on how those estimations are made, the calculations that go into that, the assumptions, that's kind of a very clear role of science, right? If you're going to publish something for peer review, you need to state up front, here are my assumptions so that other scientists can come in and say, okay, I can replicate this set of experiments to get the same outcome. And that's super important and why we wanted to start with Comet Farm as opposed to some other baseline generators, which are not public and it's not clear how you come to those estimations. And similarly, with the code, you want to be clear, here's how the code works, here's how it might get improved. And so what are some of the parallels between thinking about this from a scientific perspective and thinking about what Nori's doing from a software perspective? Yeah, the parallels between you know, the, the scientific method and open source software are very, very similar. You've got uh, this idea where if I've got some open source code and you want to, uh, and others want to use that code, 
there's there's at least a couple uh, really radical benefits of this idea that they can grab that software and do whatever they want with it. Um, the first is if it doesn't do exactly what they need it to do, you can make the modification yourself and you can make it do that additional thing so that it satisfies your constraints. Um, but the more, I guess, important part as relates to uh, you know science and peer review is that we can point out that something is not working the way that it should be working. It's it's a it's like publishing a scientific paper. It's it's putting it out there for peer review, and you're waiting for feedback, and you're waiting to improve and iterate on that idea. And so, with open source software, you have this idea where I can put software out, um, I can let others point out uh, what what might not be working or might not be working as intended, and we can iterate like as a kind of independently as businesses as individuals on top of that software to improve it. So if, if I'm a developer, and believe me, I am not a developer, but <laughs> if I were to be a we developer, you. you believe me, okay, <laughs> and I'm really excited about what Nori is doing, uh, how might I contribute? Am I am I welcome to just go on to GitHub where the code is stored and, and poke around? Does, what would I do? Yeah, we have uh, various uh, repositories out on GitHub. Um, GitHub, by the way, is like the leading open source place to get software or place to collaborate on software um you can go so you could go to github github.com slash nori.eco spelt out n-o-r-i-d-o-t-e-c-o and then you can see all of our various repositories of code there but the probably the the better of of the couple that are there are going to be our contracts our smart contracts our fully open source right you can go to this repository there's instructions there for how to play around with them um, to tinker with what other types of things you can build. Um, there's a list of you know things that we as Nori could definitely use help from the open source communities so that we can improve effectively the removal of carbon and the, the market that surrounds it. There's a very funny paradox that it makes sense if someone just told you this, but on looking into it even a little bit, it starts to unravel very quickly, which is that a lot of software is built uh, with privacy in mind. Sometimes you'll talk to people who are either uh, creating some new tech or new business and they're in stealth mode and they don't want to tell anyone about it because they're worried someone's going to take their idea. And in many cases, technology that's developed in those ways is less safe than something that's developed out in the open, right? Because when it's out in the open, you have more eyes on it. People are able to proof it, make sure it actually does what it's supposed to, uh, that there aren't gaps in it. But if you just have this like little set of people looking at it uh, who kind of are like, like, imagine if it was just the people internal to Nori, we would almost certainly miss things if it was just us looking at the code, right? Yeah. So if you're deploying something out in public, some, sometimes it's just better to just be like, hey, here's the code. It's, it's like any idea though, right? It's, it's if you have, you know, a very like fundamental belief in politics or whatever, um, and you're just talking in an echo chamber. Uh, you're only ever going to hear the same viewpoints. You're only ever going to hear exactly what you need to hear. And you will never be able to hear something that might make you tweak the way that something works, uh, be it in a thought process, be it in science, be it in code, um, to make it potentially adaptable or usable in places other than that closed circle. So you're working on the back end, which I'm just going to play dumb if you could define what back end even means. But if you could also explain... What about the backend has to do with blockchain and what just has to do with good software that enables blockchain-ready data that can be queried and make carbon removal certificates? Yeah. Uh, so so we, we talked about the Comet API. Um, so let's start there. 
with with our technology stack um, and also just as a fundamental problem for computer science um, it's how do you take the, the physical world and how do you mix that into the digital world it just they don't cope they don't play well with each other they're completely different like locations if if you want to call it a location and so with with comet farm we start with this idea that we need to get data and so we access comet farms data and we pull that data in and then we take that data and we process it and this is all happening in, in what you uh, called out as the back end this is something that's happening kind of behind the scenes it's happening not in a graphic interface it's not something that you can kind of watch as like the stream of a real event. Yeah, contrasted with the front end, which is something that you're experiencing when you go on a website or you use an app. That's all the front end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so we we've got that data, we pull that data in. Then we capture that data and we process it. And this happens in traditional like traditional computing and traditional software. Um, and then we take that data and we store it and we encapsulate it into uh, effectively a representation of of value and data. Um, and we take that and we store that into a smart contract that will exist at some point on uh, a, a blockchain, which is another backend technology, um, but there, I guess, are, are categories of this backend technology. You have things that are on the front end, which would be like a, a graphic interface. You have things in the back end, which are like APIs, and then you have like almost like a step further uh, removed, which is things that are exist on like this public ledger. Um, things things that are potentially out of your control, yet you can put things there. One, but once they're there, they're out of your control. So, so that's that's kind of the life cycle of the data from Comet to the smart contract. Um, then you have this this front end, the Nori uh, application, which serves as a marketplace for people to purchase and sell these carbon removal certificates, which in and of themselves encapsulate those those data uh, sources that we were talking about. Then you have the final part, which is okay. Once that data is out there, you have a full marketplace. Um, you have a way for people to even external of the Nori application, whether Nori even exists or not, can continue trading or can continue using those those bits of code um, or bits of data to do other things um, completely independently of Nori. Yeah, that brings to mind a comment that came up on a previous podcast, I think we did with one of our advisors, Ramez Nam, where he said, his favorite phrase to explain Nori is Nori is building an API for carbon removal. And Paul likes to say, it's like we're making an app store and Apple didn't know exactly how people are going to use the app store, but they put it out there. And so similarly, we'll have a system that people who are interested in removing carbon dioxide, either in the buying or selling part of it, can use this API. Is that about right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So so a fundamental, like one of the building blocks of our application are these smart contracts that allow for uh, buying and selling of digital assets, really. And so, so when we have an API that can interact with such a system, uh, then effectively, really, you put it out to the open source community and you say, you build what you want to build with this. We have these, these uh, building blocks. What can you come up with to use those or consume those? And, and potentially, one of the easier ones to, one of the external use cases for such an API um, would be imagine you are you know, building some other application, some mobile application. And you want to incentivize your users to be a little bit more sustainable. Um, well, in this application, you can tie into uh, the uh, smart contracts and you can look at that user's historical carbon removal footprint to see or to incentivize behaviors or 
to allow for the use and consumption of uh, carbon data in other applications. Yeah, that scalability is really important. Building something, I mean, one of the reasons why we chose the, the name Nori is, is as an organism, seaweed is, you know, it's, it's quite simple, but can also grow very, very fast and into complex ecosystems. And that's what we're about. We want to make the infrastructure that makes the rest of it possible. We actually, we've had a lot of discussion about this recently too. Because it isn't just the code that's open source for Nori, but there's also this discussion of of to what degree will methodology development be open source? Are people going to independently develop new methodologies for carbon removal? Like we're starting with regenerative agriculture via cropping, but what if someone had an idea for methodology? Do they uh, bring us the idea and say, hey, will you develop this for us and then release it to the public and we can comment on it together? Or do they just go and develop the methodology and bring it to us? There's different ways of doing it. In some ways, these questions all end up political about who has control over the API and over Nori, and they're all quite interesting. And I'm sure there's plenty of stories in software that end up with people, even in open source, it isn't always uh, so clean on who gets to decide what. And I'm sure there are some nasty commits that happen that uh, cause fights. You as listeners can't quite see how evil Ross's grimaces when he talks about open source software. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. No, it's really great. There, it's. Um, I think we, we want to be able to take advantage of the momentum and genius of people who are not directly attached to Nori. We have a lot of entrepreneurial energy that is circling us, both from the development and software side, but also from the methodology side. And how do we how do we integrate this in a way that works holistically and isn't distracting and also is adding value and make sure if someone has a really good idea, how can it get implemented as fast as possible and things don't get siloed and I think that's one of the beautiful things about open source, uh, the open source ethos in general, is that you have to be open to change and it isn't, you're not so worried about people stealing your idea because what matters is the execution and the relationships more so like the idea of a carbon removal market by itself isn't incredibly novel, right? The idea of tokenizing carbon removal. Would you say that's a particularly unique idea, Paul? Uh, uh, uh. I, the idea of creating an API for carbon removal, that's definitely new and unique and has not been implemented. Are in, you worried about in, someone stealing it, though, given oh, that we haven't launched, but we've been talking about it for a long time? No, because this this stuff is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> not only not only that, it I mean, that's why I, I have always groaned and rolled my eyes um, when people talk about needing to sign an NDA to learn about their startup idea or something like that. It's like, give me a break. You, if, you're, if your thing was really providing value in a way that other people weren't, then uh, people wouldn't duplicate it just because it's hard to do. And if you were able to demonstrate value uh, to, to the point where it would be worth duplicating or copying, then you've already got a, a head start on everyone else. So just put the idea out there and then let people riff off of it because that's going to make you better and stronger and probably less susceptible to being overtaken by a competitor in the future. Yeah. When I was, when I was in Los Angeles and I was doing screenwriting and I was sending scripts out over email and uh, sometimes people would get really weird, like, oh, is someone going to steal my idea? But the rule I've always heard against copywriting or getting too into bunker mentality was that your idea should be so unique that only you could write this version of it. And if that's not the case for your script, it's probably not that good anyways. Yeah. Um, by, by the time something is, is easy to duplicate, it's no longer novel. 
You have a great way to turn a phrase, Jason. <laughs> Why don't we start wrapping it up and tell people about some resources to learn more? We we thought a lot this episode about who our listeners are, and uh, I imagine most of you, we should probably send a survey out at some point and just get a, a better sense of what people like and what they don't. And uh, I think most of them probably come from the environmental side. We probably have less blockchain listeners, so we try to do it that way and uh, bring the blockchain to the environmental people rather than vice versa. What might be a good way for people to dive into learning about this, Jason? There's there's a ton of good ways to learn about uh, Nori or the blockchain. I mean, there's there's all kinds of books out there now. There's um, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos released uh, the Mastering Ethereum book. Um, we've uh, got tons and tons of things on media. You didn't plug yourself, learn. so I'm going to plug you. You are one of the authors of that uh, book. Contributors, contributors. yeah, of, of several dozen. Very modest, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's there's all kinds of. Uh, I, personally, I have a, a piece in uh, Hacker Noon, which people can uh, read about any of the various you know in underpinnings of blockchain that I write about, um, specifically you know, t- or typically around uh, smart contracts. And there's, there's just a lot of uh, resources out there for, for people to learn these things now. Shocking that you did not mention any of the overpriced blockchain conferences as an option to learn more. <laughs> <laughs> there yeah. are just too many. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know which one to pick from. <laughs> there are a lot. Yeah. The, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, when he, when he writes, you should definitely listen. He's, he's one of the best at just giving uh, amazing analogies uh, or visualizations of what blockchains enable in such a beautiful way. I could listen to him lecture for hours and often have the internet of money. Uh, both volumes of that are very good. Mastering Bitcoin is great. And that's what Mastering Ethereum is his new book, which is quite technical, which should be released by the time this podcast is out. I've had it pre-ordered for close to a year and I'm dying to get it. There's a bunch of other books. I used to give away Digital Gold by Nathaniel Popper uh, until Audible told me I could no longer give it away because I think I gave away like 30 (laughs) copies of it because the first one you give to someone who doesn't have Audible is free. Um, That's how he got me. Yeah. Didn't you reach out to Nathaniel Popper and tell him that? I did. I did. Uh, I said, I think they they disabled me. So I'm one of your biggest evangelists. It's it's such a great book because it's the early... pre-Ethereum. It's just Bitcoin. It's just an early history of the ideas that led to Bitcoin, which there's a prehistory, and then uh, where it's gone in the couple of years since it was released. That one's great. I gave a copy of it to my girlfriend and it got her a lot more interested in cryptocurrency. So that's, that's a plug. <laughs> it's a complicated story. And I mean, no one would care about it if it wasn't for the crazy speculative nature of it because it's quite esoteric, but it tells the story in such an amazing philosophical way. There's also a book called That One Hour Book on Blockchain. I think his name's Jonathan Morley. That That's maybe the, the best, really simple, easy introduction that I've read. For, for me, though, learning about something, you, you can learn about something by reading things. Um, for others, you have to actually like dive into it to fundamentally understand it or fundamentally think about it in a way that clicks and gives you that aha, like, this is something I should think about. I think more. I know where you're going. And and so so for people, if they want to actually get more interested um, or, or kind of are curious about this technology or uh, any of the associated e- ecosystems, you should start building things. Um, if you build things, you'll, you'll see very quickly that this is something to uh, care about. And I've tried many different times in many iterations to learn the basics of, of coding and programming. And I've, 
I've dabbled a fair amount, but the the best service that I've used, and it's also free, is called Crypto Zombies, and you can actually start using Solidity, which is the the language of smart contracts on Ethereum, and use it to build a crypto collectibles, sort of like Crypto Kitties, if you've heard of that. You can build your own version of it, and you you build it sort of like front front to back, like the entire thing is built by the time you finish it, or or pretty much. And uh, I thought that was a really unique experience and very good. So uh, maybe that's an intermediate step if they're not ready to build something totally their own. It's a yeah, it's a very, very uh, simple step uh, for for anyone. It's, you know, it's got a nice graphic interface. It's got some easy code to write. Um, it's easy for anyone to really learn some of this stuff. Um, there's I mean, there's also just various tools for people who have a little bit more uh, programming experience like Truffle and uh, so many others. So really, it's, I would say, just get out there and build things if you want to learn about it. Great advice. This has been a fun podcast. Just to close this out, Jason, and it might be old news by the time this podcast airs, but from a software development perspective, what can we expect to see uh, coming down the pipe in the Nori product side? Uh, I would hope that uh, we start to uh, get our application out there in uh, users' hands. Uh, we're getting pretty close to having, I mean, we, we have a you know, minimum internal product for our, uh, I guess, employees to use. Um, but my hope is that very soon uh, we'll have something out there for consumers. Great. Well, thanks for, for letting us rope you in here against your will. Let's do another one here soon. What's that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You should probably do that. Let me talk about uh, desert blockchain real quick. So, so also one of the things that got me interested, uh, or, or kind of continuing on my path of how I got involved with blockchain, um, starting with uh, Arizona State and then kind of exploring uh, Ethereum and various uh, blockchain and smart contract technologies. Arizona uh, has a, I think it's like 1,500 plus members now of a meetup called Desert Blockchain. Um, which uh, I organize alongside the main organizer who does all of the heavy lifting, which is Jay Carpenter. And I think most of the people around this table have now met that person. Um, he runs a fantastic meetup in Arizona. So I would encourage that if there are any listeners in Arizona, come check that out. Yeah, we'll have Jay on the podcast, I'm sure, at some point here. We'd love to have him on. We're coming for you, Jay Carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> That's our new creepy sign-off here. And, you know, we're coming for you too, Nathaniel Poplar. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> yeah, I'd be honored to have him. His his column is great whenever I see it come out. Um, yeah, well, thanks for being here with us, Jason. And let's do it again soon. I'm sure there's a, there's a lot more to this. I want to track the life of data all the way through the Nori system. Let's do it some other time. Yeah, let's draw it out. <laughs>